Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 31st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, local and state police are meeting in Jackson to discuss how they can respond to calls efficiently and reduce youth crime. Mississippi State Health Officer discusses the first round of religious-based vaccine exemptions and the growing number of COVID cases. Plus, a documentary screening tonight tells the story of school desegregation in one Mississippi community. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Law enforcement leaders from multiple agencies in Hines County meet in the capital city to discuss cooperation efforts. Also, the growing trend of crimes committed by minors. Among the participants in the Partners in Public Safety Forum yesterday, leaders from the Capitol Police and Jackson Police Departments, the Hines County District Attorney's Office, and the County Sheriff's Department. Our Will Stribling speaks with JPD Police Chief Joseph Wade about the meeting, how his police force plans to work alongside a newly expanded jurisdiction Capitol Police. I'm just excited that we're going to work together, uh, Capitol Police, Hines County Sheriff's Department, the District Attorney's Office, and it's going to be crucial that they, once they get their 911 system up and going, it's going to release a lot of strain that we have at the Jackson Police Department, because as I stated, we're answering between 7,000 to 10,000 calls a week. And if those calls can go directly to Capitol, that's going to free my manpower up so we can be more proactive within the city of Jackson. Uh, and it was mentioned earlier that uh, the you know, violent crime increased the past years, that more uh, of those crimes are being committed by young people. Is, is mm-hmm. that ring true in, in, in your experience? And, and what do you talk that up to? Yeah, well, it's very concerning to me when I get a call that an 11-year-old has committed a violent crime against an adult or when a 13-year-old or 14-year-old. So it's very concerning. We do have a population of youth that are committing violent acts here in the city of Jackson. We must tackle that. We must work with the school system. We must have intervention and prevention programs because these kids are young and they're making decisions that's going to impact them for the rest of their life. So we do understand that they need to be punished, but we also need to find out what, where the issues start. Did it start at home? Did it start by gang activity? Did it start by not being properly in school, were you truant, were you suspended, were you expelled? So we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to break that cycle of youth violence here. 
in the city of Jackson. Have you noticed that any, any trends there as far as the the, the roots, you know, in, in these instances where they are committing, you know, real, really violent, serious crimes? The, the commonality is at home. You know, lack of parenting, lack of accountability, lack of oversight, and when kids are raising themselves and they're getting the education from the streets, then we have this cycle of violence that we have to break. Yeah, and how the, important do you think it is that the, the citizens understand the, that that y'all and the um, and the, the Capitol Police are in partnership, and that it isn't just them, you know, taking some of your territory and thing like that? No, that no, it's a cohesive, yeah. you know, symbiotic yeah. relationship. And I'm concerned that we have to share information. That is why I had the conversation with Chief Luckett because we're dealing with the same individuals, whether in the CCID whether they're in West Jackson or South Jackson, we have to share that information, make sure we work collectively with the district attorney to make sure these people are prosecuted because when we don't share information, the criminal element prospers, and we do not want that. The expansion of the Capitol Police jurisdiction was passed into law this year to address the city's high crime rate. Bo Lucky, chief of the Capitol Police Department, says it will take time to have their ditch dispatch system fully operational. Right now we're looking at hopefully implementing a 911 integration for Capitol Police within the city of Jackson sometime around March or April of, uh, of 2024. That's, that's, our, that's our goal. Obviously, we'd love to do it sooner. However, you know, the logistical uh, practicality of building the system and getting it all together, mapping out the CCID within the city of Jackson, which is something that has never been done, we have to do all that first. So there's a lot of intricate moving parts in this. A lot of pieces have got to come together. And we're hoping that, like I said, by March or April, we will be able to go online with our 911 system to where when, this, when the citizens in the city of Jackson, it's just more efficient. It's going to help us out on so many levels. It's going to help the citizens. It's going to help us. Because when a citizen is in the CCID, they need to be able to call one number and one number alone. And when they can call 911, and the system says, hey, this is where this person is. This is the police department that goes there, whether that's Capitol Police or Jackson Police Department. It makes everything operate more efficiently in the way it's supposed to. So it's going to be a huge, huge um, resource for Capitol Police and for the citizens of Jackson. Coming up, the state health officer is asking Mississippians to be mindful of public health as school activities resume. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. Want to know what that family keepsake is worth? MPB's next Antique Showcase will be coming to the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College in Biloxi on Friday, October 13th and Saturday, October 14th will have professional appraisers on site to evaluate a variety of treasure types. Tickets are limited and will go quickly, so don't delay. Reserve your tickets at mpbfoundation.org slash msshowcase. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. School is back in session, and for the first time, hundreds of K-12 through students across Mississippi have been granted approval for vaccine exemptions. At the same time, the state is facing an increase in the number of coronavirus cases. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with State Health Officer Dr. Dan Edney about how folks can make decisions that can keep themselves and their family safe. Be thoughtful, be aware. If you're uh, higher risk, and and I'm one of those, I'm 61, so those of us over 60 need to be more careful. Uh, We don't you know, we're not in the pandemic anymore. This is, for us at the health department, it's going to be more like flu season, and it needs to be managed and through proper you know, vaccination boosters. And if you're high risk, you know, mitigate that risk. If you need to wear a mask, feel comfortable wearing a mask, I would encourage folks uh, to respect the fact that some people need to wear a mask. There won't be a mask mandate, but there will always be people who are at high risk who need to wear a mask. Um, and uh, if you have chronic health conditions, diabetes, severe hypertension, kidney disease, then you need to protect yourself because those are our folks who currently continue to die from COVID, or, uh, our older folks and those with chronic health conditions. So um, our, the annual COVID booster will be out uh, next month. I'll take mine when I take my flu shot. And we also have the RSV vaccine for adults that uh, will be out this year. And, you know, just be prepared for the winter. There's no need to die of something preventable. It's funny that we see COVID numbers rising right when we're getting back to school. A lot of the moms in the audience, they brought their kids. We could hear the kids in the background. They're probably concerned about back to school stuff as well. What's the best way for moms like these, the ones at the event, to keep their kids safe while school's back in session? The exact same principles for flu season. This is a respiratory illness, easily uh, transmissible. Uh, so uh, follow the recommendation of your child's health care provider in terms of whether they need vaccination or not. Uh, and you know, just uh, teach them proper hand washing techniques. And, of course, uh, the schools do a great job monitoring you know, situations, and we help them. Uh, you know, we still provide free testing for, uh, for schools. So if a school is struggling with an outbreak, uh, they can contact us at the Department of Health. We'll get them free testing supplies. Uh, we are uh, pushing free testing out to places of congregate living, uh, shelters, and you know, rehab centers. Uh, we are supporting organizations like here that if they need uh, testing to give to their clients. So we're you know, trying to support those you know, who need help. Uh, you know, COVID, at, at least for the foreseeable near future is going to be with us in you know one way or another uh, but where you know the population immunity is so much higher than two years ago we're not where we were two years ago so we don't have to live in fear of covid but we still have to manage it like we do all the the illnesses we encounter this time of year flu has always been deadly it continues to be deadly you know, but most people don't die from the flu, thank goodness. And that's true for COVID, but unfortunately, deaths are not zero, but they're low. And this will also be our first year that allows for religious exemptions for vaccines. Um, as a medical professional, does that concern you in any way? Well, of course it does. We haven't had measles in 40 years in this state. We're going to have it now. 
you know, so that's uh, and that's in our lap uh, that you know not if but when measles raises its head in Mississippi again, it'll be up to the health department to work those cases and try to contain those from converting to outbreaks. Uh, that law has protected our children for over 40 years. It still continues to protect our children. And the way uh, that we worked with the federal court to uh, roll out the religious exemptions, you know, it satisfied the federal judge that we are taking care of to provide a religious exemption uh, as well as to protect the public. My job is to protect the public. And for me, protecting these precious little ones going to school are extremely important. Protecting my granddaughter as she goes to daycare is very important. And uh, and so it's our job to maintain those vaccination rates as high as we can so that we protect those most vulnerable of our children who aren't able to be vaccinated for medical reasons. The legislators, our state lawmakers, are about to join up. Anything you hope to see them take action on? Well, to help us with two, two main things, to help us with maternal infant death. That work costs money. We're doing it, and we were, we're pushing harder with uh, innovations. They actually, know where the state is doing, and uh, and we need that that support from the legislature. Uh, I know they care just as as we do. And then also to put that emphasis on core public health at the community level with our with our county health departments. Our people in Mississippi depend on them. They've been struggling for the last seven years, and you know we just have to come together to give people what they need in public health. Absolutely, Dr. Edney, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, a new documentary follows the lives of the first class of students to integrate schools in Leland, Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of the original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions. Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new documentary titled The Harvest is being screened this afternoon at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. The film looks back on how Mississippi faced desegregation of its schools. Douglas Blackman is one of the producers for the new film and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book Slavery by Another Name. He grew up in Leveland, Mississippi, Leland, Mississippi, and tells the story of how his small school went through the desegregation process. Even when I was a child, uh, I was aware that something dramatic had happened in my hometown that had something to do with where I went to school and who I went to school with. Uh, When I was a kid, I didn't really know what it was that had happened or exactly when it had happened, uh, but I knew that that I lived in a town where the black kids went to the public schools and some white kids went to the public schools and then most white kids went to a private school. Uh, and I didn't really know why that was or exactly how that had happened. And I definitely didn't know that my class, when we started school in 1970, that we were the first class 
and the same in a lot of other towns in Mississippi, that we were the first class to begin the first day of first grade, black and white together, and stay that way all the way to high school graduation. And so when I learned that, that, that we had been that very first class, uh, that made a lot of experiences I remembered that had to do with race in school and some of the tensions and things around that all began to make a lot more sense. But I decided to make this film with my partner, Sam Pollard, uh, because I really wanted to understand uh, exactly what had happened then, but also try to understand why it was that even after all that work, that today public schools in my hometown and lots of other places are almost as segregated as they were 50 years ago. Uh, And I wanted to figure out why that was. There is going to be a showing of this film this evening at the two Mississippi museums. When you talk about not understanding, what is it that you didn't get? Well, in the beginning, I didn't, I just didn't know the facts because as kids, nobody was really explaining to us what was going on. We were guinea pigs in a way in a giant social experiment where America was finally trying to honestly and fully end the practice of keeping kids apart in school by race. And nobody told us that, oh, you're going to be the first group that does this 100% all the way through. And that by having you do that, that's also going to trigger that a whole lot of kids are going to leave public schools uh, and maybe entirely. Uh, and uh, you know, the way that the whole community works, the way the whole town is set up is all going to change. But so I didn't understand the basic facts of what had happened. Uh, and it turned out that there was a pretty dramatic story of all those things, as there were in so many towns across Mississippi and other states. But then I also didn't understand why it was years and years later, after I was an adult, I didn't understand why it was that the schools had basically gone back to being two systems, one black and one white. It's just that now uh, it's that African-American kids go to the public school and white kids overwhelmingly go to the private schools that were started back in the 1960s and 70s, really for the purpose of preserving segregation. I did look at the preview of the film, and I saw where you did talk with former classmates, and they said some of the same things. They didn't know anything about being the first class of mixed students going to the school. Did your parents talk about race and the state of the culture? My parents certainly talked about it in the sense that I did grow up in a family uh, that my parents were both Southerners, uh, and so they had grown up in rural Louisiana with a lot of the same kinds of a bad attitude that most white people had who grew up in the rural South in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but by the time they were parents and that I was born in 1964, by that time they had both gone through a pretty significant transition in their thinking. And certainly ours was a family in which racial epithets weren't supposed to be used and and never were, but also that they had concluded that America was changing and that it really needed to change and it had been wrong to to separate people by race. When the whole issue of public school integration came along, they were definitely in the camp of those who thought that everyone should rally around the public schools and and make it work. And so there wasn't a lot of preaching about race in my home, but certainly 
the environment that I grew up in uh, was one that made it really clear that we were not a part of some of those attitudes that some people had so much trouble letting go of. Did you get along with your classmates? Uh, do you feel like you had um, a, a good integrated experience? I think that anybody who sees the film will see a, a really intimate human portrait of this group of people uh, who, looking back, experiences that we had together, sometimes people discussing the same events um, separately and, and giving you know these very vivid perceptions on on events that we were all a part of but through all of that i think that what you'll see is that this was a group of black and white kids who like all children had to figure out how to get to know each other how to how to connect to one another but also had the additional complexities of racial differences and and different cultural backgrounds and all of those things that you would expect and certainly there were conflicts that you know that percolated up through those things, and, and some of that is described in the film. But for me, what's kind of touching about the way it all came out is that it's also really clear that this is a group of people who did grow up together, and while we experienced some of the tensions you would imagine would be experienced, they also grew to really love each other. There was something that happened among this group of black and white kids, and it affected who we were. Uh, I think it made us vastly better prepared for the America that was coming and the America that we've all lived in as adults. Uh, and I think that in the end, it does really demonstrate the value of all that. And it also demonstrates how tragic it is that that's not the experience that so many children are living today in Mississippi uh, and other places. When you look back, you talk about the reverse has happened. Do you see today in reverse or as being more like how you grew up? The one change that is undeniable and enormous is that the terrible climate of racial prejudice and intolerance that, that was a palpable thing uh, in, in Mississippi in the 1960s and 70s, that, that has changed. It certainly seems that way for me. And so there's not that overt racial animosity that one certainly could find in almost any town in Mississippi in 1970. But I think that the schools themselves and also the sense of importance around trying to make it happen, that black kids and white kids and now other kinds of kids, the sense of importance that all of these different children coming from different backgrounds, that it really matters to try to get them to go to school together, learn from each other, somehow adopt some shared sensibilities about what it is to be an American, what the ideals of, of our society really are. The urgency of trying to create that, I think, has kind of vanished. And what we now have is a world with mostly separate school systems. There's not the hostility that there was maybe in 1970, but there's the separateness that I think really does have an effect on people. Uh, and it changes what children's expectations are of what America is supposed to look like or what's normal in America. Division like that, organized division like that, doesn't seem normal to me. It doesn't seem like what the American vision is. 
Douglas Blackman's class graduated high school in 1982. He's one of the producers of the film The Harvest. An early screening is being held tonight at the two Mississippi museums, and the documentary will air on PBS TV September 12th. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.